Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 296 of the Juice Box Podcast. This episode of the show is sponsored by Dexcom, Omnipod, and Dancing for Diabetes. Please go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox to find out how to get a demonstration pod sent directly to you. Or go to dexcom.com forward slash juicebox to find out all you need to know about the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. And I'm going to throw you a curveball here. To find out about Dancing for Diabetes, go to touchedbytype1.org. Touchedbytype1.org. I have a treat for you today. Oren Lieberman is the CNN correspondent in Jerusalem. He is a adult who has type 1 diabetes. And he's a pilot. So obviously, when I was looking for some clarification on the new FAA rules about flying with type 1 diabetes, I thought, let me get Orn on the show and find out what he knows about it. Plus, a little background and some chitter-chatter. You'll see, it's a regular episode where we actually touch on a topic that I decided to touch on before we got to it. It's kind of crazy for me. I don't normally start with a topic and actually get to it. Having said all of that, I do believe it took me about a half an hour to get to the topic about flight, but I found what Oren was talking about to be incredibly interesting. So, what are we, in a rush? You got somewhere to be? Okay, I feel it's getting confrontational even though I'm here by myself. So let me just say this. Nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always please consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Real quick before the show starts, huge shout out to the people of Oklahoma. Thank you for having me out this past weekend. I had a terrific time getting to know all of you, and I hope you enjoyed the Bold with Insulin talk that I gave. My name is Oren Lieberman. I'm lucky enough to be uh, CNN's Jerusalem correspondent. I also have type 1 diabetes. I was diagnosed about five and a half years ago uh, on Valentine's Day 2014. And what will be relevant to this podcast, I'm also lucky enough to be a private pilot. Uh, in my spare time. My dad was an aerospace engineer, so I grew up around airplanes. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot my whole life. And although I'm not a commercial pilot, um, my dad had the crazy idea of building a home-built airplane. So I'm lucky enough when I'm home in the U.S. to fly that airplane. All right. So, Warren, first of all, I'll decide what's pertinent to the co- podcast. You, don't- <laughs> <laughs> you, you have no idea how many crazy directions we might end up going with this. Uh, tell me something that you said five years ago you were diagnosed. How old were you? I was 31. In fact, uh, I was diagnosed. My wife and I had quit our jobs and we were backpacking around the world. Uh, I was diagnosed in Nepal, of all places, in in Pokhara, um, a city that does not, shall we say, have the most advanced healthcare on the planet. Um, So I was diagnosed. I'd lost a tremendous amount of weight and and all the symptoms at this point we all know so well. Mm. Um, And for about two months, I'd kind of sort of sputtered along, feeling terrible and and awful and miserable and weak. Eventually, and we were volunteering there, we were teaching English at a, at a monastery, actually, my wife and I. Um, they canceled classes for a day. I stepped on a scale and decided, okay, maybe it's time to go to the doctor, having just dropped 40 pounds in, in about two months. Um, he, the doctor initially said, nothing's wrong. You have a little infection. Just you know, eat more chicken and, and have some fruit juice. 
Following that, three days later, I went back and said something's very wrong, and that's how I was diagnosed. And then I spent uh, a week in two different Nepali hospitals, which is something I wouldn't wish on anybody. <laughs> I was going to say that you just you just said a lot. So first, first <laughs> of all, are you nine feet tall? How did forty pounds look coming off of you? So I was. Uh, I mean, by the end, it was bad. Mm. Uh, skin was hanging off of me. Uh, I was so dehydrated that that my you know my wife's arms were were thicker than mine. They were stronger than mine. Um, and within the first, I think 24 to 48 hours at the hospital, I put on basically 15 pounds of, of just water weight, yeah. um, just on an IV. Um, was I a little overweight? Yeah. But did I have 40 pounds to lose? Heck no. Okay. And by the time I went to the hospital, I was in pretty bad shape. Right. Um, is it, how scary is it being out of the country when you're that sick? It's horrifying. Yeah. Um, at that point, I felt so awful near the end that it was almost a relief to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, when, when you're feeling that bad, there are a whole lot of things swirling through your mind. And I, look, I certainly thought, am I about to be diagnosed with cancer here? Oh, yeah. Um, so diabetes wasn't, uh, you know, I, I grew up with a friend who's had type 1 diabetes, and, and he was actually my second email. My first was to my family. My second was to him. And he's one of those guys that's just super positive. And from the beginning, he put me on the right track. So although it certainly wasn't a fun experience being diagnosed in Nepal, he set me sort of on the right track with the right attitude. Um, the first hospital was rough. Uh, we were there for four nights and all the, all the medications, all the food and the hospital bill came to about a hundred and I think it was $198 or $189 or something like that. And it was worth about that much for four nights. Uh, <laughs> the second hospital was a legitimate Western clinic. And that's, that's the place that got me well enough to fly home. Gotcha. And then the process of figuring out what the heck this is and how to live with it. So how long have you been the CNN correspondent in Drizzle? Um, February 2015. So I'm nearing my five-year mark. Okay. So did all of this sort of coalesce together, like your diagnosis and you taking this job? And or like, I guess maybe let me step back for a second. What were you doing prior to saying, I'm not going to work anymore and I'm going to go backpacking with my wife? So I was in local TV news. I was actually a local TV news reporter in Philly at CBS3. Oh, okay. Um, so we quit in September 2013. At that point, we'd been married for a year. My wife was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And we backpacked. I really thought I was out of journalism. Uh, I was diagnosed halfway through the trip. We then got back on the road and finished the trip the last four or five months, uh, which was an incredibly important decision for me. Um, and then I was doing a little freelance video work for four months, and suddenly CNN came calling and said, do you want to interview for Jerusalem or Beijing? And having just been to both Jerusalem and Beijing, I said, heck yeah. Um, and the conversation very quickly led towards Jerusalem, and I began almost exactly a year after my diagnosis. Oh, wow. What was it like backpacking with a new diagnosis? Very difficult. Uh, we talked to my doctor. We talked to my friend who has diabetes. Um, one of the biggest challenges was how do you keep insulin cool? Mm -hmm. And we were heading to Southeast Asia where the temperature was in the high, high 90s every day. Okay. So I had to, suddenly I had to carry around my insulin pens, um, Lantus and Humalog, and I had to uh, carry around a cool pack. And we had to make sure that hotels or, or, and, and hostels we were staying in had uh, refrigerators to keep insulin cool. Logistically, it was a nightmare. Uh, it was incredibly difficult at times, but it was, a, it was totally worth it. Um, I've, I've often said it might not be the smartest decision I ever made to get back on the road. It was probably one of the dumber decisions in hindsight. But it was very important because I decided at that point I wasn't ever going to say no because of diabetes. And the rest of the trip was incredible. Yeah, it's an excellent. Even for you know the challenges of managing blood sugars. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just it's a wonderful story because you know so many people allow the tiniest thing to 
you know, knock them off of track. It went, when diabetes comes up, they're like, oh, I don't, you know, won't go in on plane. I mean, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. There were times where I didn't feel like driving 20 minutes away from my house when my daughter was first diagnosed. You just thought, I like, understand. Yeah. You know, you're like, that's too far. Um, <laughs> it, it, was it perseverance and stubbornness or a little bit of ignorance mix enough of a mix of both? Or were you just really that brave? What was happening? And that's in your head. For two years, I've been telling you to go to dancingfordiabetes.com. You know, I jump on, I'm like, go to dancing, the number four. You know what I'm talking about. But beginning right now, I want you to go to touched by type one. Please trust me, there'll be a reason why, and that I will share that. Please trust me that there is a reason why, and that one day soon, I will share that reason with you. But for now, touchedbytype1.org of a mix of both or were you just really that brave what was happening and that's in your head uh no i think i think that was a very good description perseverance stubbornness ignorance uh stupidity uh determination yeah. part of it was and even little things factored in my wife was a teacher so she couldn't she couldn't just go back halfway through the school year and start teaching so we figured what the heck our, even our doctor said look you got the basics down your, your blood sugar's low eat sugar your blood sugar's high take insulin Figuring out how it works for you is something something you're going to have to do regardless, whether you're at home or on the road. So when he said that, it's like, all right, well, I'm just going to go figure this out on the road. Nice. Did you have <laughs> any real like health issues during that time? Did you have any scary lows or highs you couldn't break, stuff like that? A couple lows, not too many highs because I was very strict about what I was eating. Okay. Um, in fact, the worst sort of health scare wasn't, I don't think, related to diabetes. We were in Laos. And because it's a malaria zone, we cycled on to um, an anti-malarial medication, and it wiped me out to the point where I couldn't hold food down for a couple of days. Mm. To me, that was quite scary. I couldn't get my blood sugar up because I couldn't, I couldn't hold food down. So that was two days of basically sitting in a hotel room waiting to figure out what was going on. And in the end, we didn't have any official diagnosis, but I think it was just you know going on to an antibiotic as an anti-malarial just messed with my system. But that was the, you know, the worst health scare we had. And, and in hindsight, that wasn't all that bad dealing with it. So when I hear that you guys as adults sort of like, we're like, hey, we'll quit our jobs and go do this thing. You seem like free spirited people. So this next question probably doesn't need to get asked. But was your diagnosis hard on your marriage? No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, my wife was very supportive of me uh, from the very beginning. And because because we were both traveling, we didn't have jobs. She was with me in the hospital 24-7. So when I started trying to figure out my dosage, I'd figure it out with her and she'd look at it and say, look, I think this is two or three units or four units. And she knew my diabetes just as well as I did. And she still does. Yeah. Um, so did it bring us closer together? Yeah, certainly in a way it was one more challenge we had to overcome, but she's been great about it from the very beginning. That's excellent. No, I mean, I didn't expect any different from your, you know, sort of how you laid out the beginning, but it's still, it could be you know, it could be shocking to someone in a way that maybe throws them off course a little bit. So I just, I wasn't sure. Also, I wasn't sure if you would uh, admit to it out loud if, if she was like running around going, oh my God, what'd I do? <laughs> <laughs> this guy, there were other guys. Uh, <laughs> none of that. No, none of that. <laughs> um, so, okay. So d does the diabetes help you make the decision about CNN or was that just such a good opportunity that you thought, like, I guess my question is, are you at a local CBS thinking this isn't going where I want it to go and CNN is where you wanted it to go? So it, it felt like you just kind of, you found the back on the path you were looking for, or was it like, what makes you go out of something and go right back into it again, I guess is the question. 
Um, the offer essentially was just too good and, and too interesting. And having just traveled, it was it was too much of a draw to get back on the road in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I really thought I'd, I'd left journalism for good when, when I left my job at CBS in Philly. Right. Um, and then CNN came calling and I figured, what the heck, let's see where this leads. And it's been incredible. You know, I live in Jerusalem. My family is here. My kids were born here. Um, but with CNN, I've reported in, uh, let me think about this, Serbia, Russia, Poland, France, Jordan, England. And, and so having, having, having the love for travel so much and the opportunity to keep doing that while, hey, also doing it as a living was absolutely incredible and, and I was never going to pass it up. Does this job give you the feeling like, are you, do you, do you understand what's happening in the world in a different way than I do? Like, do you have to keep track of it? I guess my question is, is, is as a reporter, are you really, are you steeped in it? Like, you're not just saying the words on a page, right? Like you're, 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 understanding. God, I hope not. Yeah, yeah, do, do, you know what I mean? Like, like, I don't, I don't get this feeling from you. I'm just trying to get you to explain it to somebody else. Like you're not a talking head. You're not reading a script. You're there understanding on right. the ground stuff and reporting back on it. Yeah. So my job, my full-time job is to be here in Jerusalem and, and fully understand the story and keep track of it. Even if I'm not giving you every little update on our website and on air, I have to know what's going on so that when I am called and when it is time to get on air, I know uh, fluidly what I'm talking about and, and can and can analyze it and discuss how we got here and where we're going from here. The more difficult is, is for example, when I go to Moscow, and I've been there about six or seven times now, because although I keep track of that to some extent, I don't follow it on a day-to-day basis. So that's getting in there, catching up, you know, was it, what is it I've missed in the last six months? Mm-hmm. Um, and then doing that and kind of just keeping an eye on what's going on all over the place in case I get sent in. Certainly, whenever you're sent to a story that is not your full-time story, there is a process of catching up as quickly as possible. And then we always have teams on the ground who are there to help you out and sort of answer questions um, and fill in the, the blanks of the knowledge that we don't have because we don't follow it day to day on, on different stories. Are there things happening all over the world that intersect with us in ways we don't even understand? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. Um, you know, some of it's fascinating to talk about. Some of it gets very, very minute and, and very tiny, but it affects policy all over the world. And, um, and, and the interplay is fascinating to see, um, and, and just sort of try to follow it. Um, does that mean I'm great at it? I'm not sure about that, but I, you know, I enjoy my job and I enjoy doing that and trying to follow how policy here affects policy there and, and how decisions are all tied together. But what about you in your past made you feel like this was something that was just too good to pass up? Is it, did you have a love for, for global politics <laughs> or history or, or are you, I'm dying to know. I just, I'm sorry. We'll get to the diabetes at some point, but I just, I really want to understand. That. All good. Yeah, of course. No, look, I've never had a good answer to this question and, and certainly not the answer that people kind of expected me to have. I think okay. when I was in college uh, and I went to the university of Virginia, I decided on the spot watching basketball that I was going to do the radio play by play for the Sacramento Kings. Um, Very specific. Except I had no idea how to do that. <laughs> so I went back to back to New Jersey, got a job at, uh, I got an internship at an FM radio station. Mm-hmm. And one of the DJs sat me down and said, what are you doing here? So I told him I want to do radio sports. And he said, look, go back to school, call up the local AM station and beg to get on air. Just do it. So I did it. And then I went to grad school at Syracuse to get better at radio sports. And one of my professors sat me down and he said, look, you don't want to work in radio and you don't know anything about sports. You're going to do TV news. So I said, okay, not knowing any better. And that's how I got into TV news. Um, and then I've always found it fun, right? It's not a job behind the desk. I'm out in the field. I meet new people. 
and I haven't been fired yet. <laughs> so is, here I am. Is it possible if that man said to you, I really see Orin as more of a poodle groomer, you would have been like, all right. And <laughs> or <laughs> look, I can't rule it out. Maybe that's where I'd be today. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I think that the people you meet along the way obviously help you, you know, especially when you're younger, right? You don't really know what you want to do. You just like my, my son just, um, he's like a sophomore in college. And the other day he's like, I'm going to have to, you know, go lock down my major with the school. And, uh, you know, we're like, yeah, maybe get to that if you don't mind, excuse me. And, um, I was like, you know, do you still have any idea what you want? He has no idea. Like, and I don't think it's reasonable to expect that a 20 year old would just, you know, like, oh, yeah, sure, here's all the things I want to do in life, and I'm, this is going to be perfectly correct. My wife was telling my daughter the other day, she's like, if, uh, you know, the plans of the 19 or 20-year-old me came true, uh, none of you would exist, because I thought I was going to go to New York <laughs> and like, live in an apartment by myself and do this. And, you know, she's like, you know, we met people along the way and, and kind of veered around and made decisions. But you're in a place now, you look very comfortable, um, which uh, is amazing. What's it like raising kids overseas? Are you... Are there any drawbacks or you don't feel that way? Oh, my God. What I wouldn't give for grandparents near us to help us out or even you know my siblings to help us out, it's tough. Yeah. We're a 12-hour flight away from home. Um, our, our kids don't get to see their grandparents that often. It's a great opportunity. My kids are learning multiple languages and meeting people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still difficult. And, and certainly at some point, the goal is get back to the U.S. Okay. Um, you know, to your son, you can tell him, look, I'm still making it up as I go along. I do what's fun. And so far, it's led me down the right path. I just told him, look, man, I'm like, you're good at math. You know, get better at that and see if it leads you somewhere. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you, you, you know, yeah. but, but you'll be educated. You'll have seen the world for four years. You'll at least be able to prove to an employer one day, look, I can sit down and do things that I don't really want to do. That's how I got this degree. <laughs> <laughs> I can work hard for you. Um so, yeah, so your parents are actually close to me, but not to you, I, which was crazy when we reached out and, and we're trying to set this up. And so you grew up incredibly close to where I'm at right now. Is that right? Yeah, I grew up on the Jersey Shore. My first job ever, I was a, a cabana boy at a beach club. And uh, I've tried to move up in the world since then. But it's, it seems like you may have, although probably <laughs> the tan's not as good in Jerusalem. But I mean, you know, uh, what are you going to do? So, okay, so are you managing your diabetes now still with pens, or have you changed how you're doing that? No, I still do pens. Um, I have a lot of friends who've, who've told me eventually everyone switches to a pump, and I said, look, you're probably right. I'm just not there yet. Mm. Uh, I do have a CGM. I have a, a Freestyle Libre. I love that. It's on my left arm at the moment. But I've decided not to go with an insulin pump yet, and I, I still carry around my pens, and I inject in my arms, and I don't, I don't care who sees. Yeah, well, oh. That's first of all, that's fantastic. And you shouldn't care. Um, I'm a huge proponent of just, you know, handle yourself in public. Like why go into the dirtiest room in a restaurant to, you know, open a hole in your body? That's a, that's <laughs> exactly. <a> sense. <laughs> yeah. I have to poke a hole in myself. Where should I go? The public restaurant. <laughs> that makes total sense. Um, and so you're, you're pretty old school for 2019. Are you getting, are you having the, um, the results you're hoping for? Like your management is where you'd like it to be. Yeah, I, ha- I have to admit, I haven't checked my A1C in a while, but at last check, it was about a 5.8, wow. uh, which I'm very happy with. One doing. of the things I think is easier uh, about being diagnosed later in life is it's, it's easier to be disciplined, right? For, for 31 years, I ate whatever I wanted. For, for 10 years, I drank whatever I wanted. And now, okay, now it's time to get a little serious on that. Um, I, you know, I think it could be much harder going through the teenage years where you want to rebel a little bit. College could be difficult. 
Um, so in that sense, I feel very lucky that I was diagnosed later and it's, it's just buckling down for two years. I wrote down every single one of my blood sugars in a notebook and, and what I had, how much insulin I took and what my reading was before and after. (laughs) Um, and although I, even my doctor said, look, this is nuts. You're going to burn yourself out. And that's very dangerous in diabetes. So even he told me to back off But that, let's say that set the pace right and set a good direction for trying to eat right and exercise and, and. And look, if my blood sugar is high, I'm not ashamed to keep keep injecting in front of people until it's where I want it to be. Yeah, that's what you got to do. Well, that's pretty cool. And you said your wife's still involved. Like she, you think if you just shut down for a day, she could handle your blood sugars and things like that. And like this dosing decisions and stuff. Is she that involved or is it just more peripherally now? No, I think she'd be pretty close. She might be a unit off here and there, but I think she'd be pretty darn close. The risk there is does she want to stab me over and over again? She might want to, in which case we have bigger issues to work on. Um, but I, she's still very involved and, and checks that I have supplies when we go traveling and makes sure I have the right supplies and everything I need. So she is still very involved in, um, in my diabetes. I think the only thing that frustrates her is now with two kids, I'm always scared You know, when they're a little sick. Oh, my God, is it diabetes? And there she tells me, look, you got to calm down. And but that's tough. <laughs> do you, I was going to ask you, you have two, two children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you consider like trial that? Like, where are you with the idea of wanting to know if they have antibodies or not? Do you. So we did trial that with my daughter, who's now three and a half years old. We did that at children with diabetes, uh, three years ago. Mm-hmm. She was, uh, or maybe two years ago. I forget. Um, so I'm all for that. I'm, I'm curious. And, and if certainly if it helps science beyond just my family, that's great. So I'm all for that. She hasn't fought me on that. Um, we're, we're just in Jerusalem, so it's a little hard to keep in touch with all of that and, and keep up on it. No, of course. No, I've just spoken to people who have, you know, they seem to fall in one or two camps. And, you know, I have to know. I want to know. I want to be ready. That that feeling, I don't want to wonder. And then there's other people who are like, look, if it happens, it happens. You know, I can't I can't impact it. Everybody's got like a different feeling. I, I bring this up a lot, but Sam Fold. Um, who is a, a coach with the Phillies now, but used to play, he was in the, he played major league baseball for eight years. He told me like, you know, my life is perfectly well like this. Like, why would I, he's like, I don't want my kids to have diabetes, but if they do, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't stopped me at all. And, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, a really interesting perspective. Just like, look, I'm a person. Would they not be a person anymore? If I, if they had diabetes, no, you, you know? And I was like, wow, that's really, that's very clear headed. Um, and when he said that, so yeah I, yeah, I don't think there's a, a rule. I just was wondering what you were doing. Okay. So, uh, your life is really different than most people's. Um, but no more so I think than the idea of wanting to put yourself off the ground. I don't understand it. Uh, I think you're probably crazy and, uh, everyone who wants to fly a plane, I think has some sort of a, a there's something they're lacking in their brain that says, Oh, it's fine. We'll float up off the ground. I can handle that. That makes me, that makes oh, me, come on. Dude, That's it a makes little me harsh. very nervous, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm impressed by it. Incredibly impressed by it. The idea, how old were you when you thought I want to fly a plane? Have you always wanted to move to an insulin pump? Just waiting for the right time. Try today. Go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box to request a free experience kit from Omnipod. You'll be able to try a pod for free. So if you've, if you're considering insulin pump therapy, the best way to understand the comfort and convenience the pod offers is to try it firsthand. So get a free experience kit, which includes a sample non-functioning pod and see what you think. 
there's absolutely no obligation to buy. You'll be able to wear a non-functioning pod to see how it feels, find the for you on your body or on your child's body, and experience the freedom you could have with the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. Oh, that's right. There's no tubes. Unlike every other insulin pump on the market, the Omnipod is tubeless. It is completely a self-contained unit. There is nothing for you to stuff in your bra or to clip on your belt. Just this tiny little insulin pump that just, you know, goes with you right on your skin. Everything you need is inside of it, including the insulin. And when you want to tell it what to do, you just use the personal diabetes manager. Just a little thing you hold with you, right? Keep it with you. Push some buttons, and then it speaks wirelessly to the pump. It's magic, like through the air. Anyway, you understand it's 2020, how things can talk to each other. I don't think you're that crazed by it. But I'm just saying, at least there's no long piece of tubing that goes from a controlling unit to your infusion set. Everything's just self-contained. Love, Dave. This is the exact same insulin pump my daughter has been wearing since she was four years old. For over, gosh, 11 years now. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Check it out today. There's absolutely no obligation. The other sponsor I'll be talking about today is Dexcom, makers of the G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. Now this thing is, well, it's the bee's knees. Let's be honest. The Dexcom G6 will tell you the speed and direction of your blood sugar, right? Not just the speed and the direction, but what it is. So imagine knowing that your blood sugar is 126 and that it's moving up at a rate of three points per minute. Hmm? Think about it. Mull it over. What could I do with that information? Well, I can tell you what we do with it. Now, our results are ours, of course, and yours may vary. But what we do with that information... In that scenario, we put in some insulin. Or if we find out Arden's blood sugar is falling, maybe we take in some food or cut back some basil. There are so many options when you understand what your blood sugar is doing in real time. And those options for caregivers exist even when the person with diabetes isn't with you. Now, how could that happen, right? Smoke signals? The Dexcom G6 sends up a smoke signal and you read it at home? No! please. That would be ridiculous. It would take forever. How about Apple and Android phones having the Dexcom share and follow features? That means if your kid's off at school or a playground at a friend's house and their blood sugar starts to change, you'll see it on your phone when you're following them. Are you kidding me? Do I have to say more? I mean, aren't you already scrambling around going to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box? I would think you would be. Listen, the Dexcom is how we make this every day. And you've heard it me here, and I've said it before, and I think I've even said it in this episode. Her A1C is spectacular. Her variability, amazing. Her health, excellent. How does that happen? Dexcom and Omnipod. Check out Dexcom right now. The G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor, Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. With the links in your show notes right there in your podcast player. Or the ones available at juiceboxpodcast.com. And while you're clicking around on the internet, have Omnipod send you one of those no obligation samples. How old were you when you thought, I want to fly a plane?
two years old, three years old, as young as I can remember. No kidding. Always, always no. wanted to be a pilot. All right. Okay. So let's dig into this. How do you become a pilot? Like, what did you, I mean, I'm assuming lessons is where you start. Right. So when I was in high school, my dad started building a home-built airplane. And my dad has a PhD in aerospace engineering. He's very smart and he loves working with his hands. So he said, this will take me three years. 11 years later, the plane is finally finished. <laughs> and as we were getting near to completion and we could see completion was on the horizon of our uh, a home-built two-seat airplane, mm-hmm. um, I started taking flight lessons at the time I was in Delaware. It took me about six months flying roughly twice a week. Uh, and that's it. On March 14th, 2007, I became a, a certified pilot in the U.S. Wow. And my wife knows this very well. Uh, that was the most important day of my life until my daughter was born. It was pilot's license number one, marriage number two. Now it's my, my, my daughter is born, my son is born, pilot's license, marriage. It's that important to me that, that, I'm, that I'm able to be a pilot. Did it ever occur to you to join the military so you could fly more? Yes. Um, I told my dad... I, that I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but he said, look, you're going to go to college. You're going to get a degree. So I did that. And, and by that point that kind of set me off in the direction of, you know, my current job and and broadcast journalism. But in 2008 or 2009, I actually applied to air national guard units to fly fighter jets. Okay. And I got an interview with Maryland. And as I sit down and the, the application is quite exhaustive and there are a lot of tests you have to go through. As I sit down for the interview, the first question is, we see here on your application, it says your right eye is 2400. Is that a typo? Should that say 2040? And I said, no, my right eye is 2400, but with, with contacts and glasses, it's correctable to 2020. I knew the interview was over at that point. No kidding. I knew the second I told them I didn't have anywhere close to perfect vision in one eye, the interview was over. And that's when I decided I will not be a fighter pilot yeah. or a commercial pilot. Isn't that interesting? That, that's that simple of an idea. Um, yeah, yeah. They don't want that. I guess you don't want to lose your contact while you're going mock something. And uh, yeah, <laughs> well, this thing's really bothering me today. My allergies. Um, <laughs> well, that's was that devastating or no? You were kind of no. I remember thinking, and the interview continued for half an hour, so it was weird to sit there knowing full well the interview was really over, but sure. they wanted to go through the formality of it. There was something that, that almost put me at peace. Like, okay. This dream is not happening. I can now get back to full time being a reporter and and pursue this because I because I still enjoy it, obviously. Um, and they, they were really great guys. And that certainly helped. There was no like it wasn't like you suck at this. Move on. Get out of here. It yeah. was, you know, they were encouraging and supportive. But I remember feeling like this is a moment of peace. I can now move on from this dream uh, and I will just be a private pilot and, and, and do this for fun. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, before we uh, I'm a, I, I felt myself moving on, but I need to ask this question before I do. Your your father made a lot of things that you trusted, um, like like he he built also <laughs> a car, your house by hand, things like that, or just a plane, and then you got into it and flew away. Which, which is and do, does he still own that plane? Yeah, we still have the plane. It's still waiting for me when I go home. Wow. Um, he built our house. He at one point had a company that was building houses, so he did build our house. Uh, I shouldn't say this, but he also his fascination. He started building remote control airplanes. And he crashed a lot of them. But the upside to that is I saw him fix a lot of them. So I knew there was handiwork somewhere in there. It was just, did it come in the initial build or the let's fix this later? Um, we, uh, look, I think the first time I climbed into that plane, he was probably terrified. Yeah. <laughs> um, thinking, uh, <laughs> right? Like you're taxi and he's like, I wonder if I just killed that kid. Like, I mean, I love him. <laughs> it's a weird thing. Does he fly? Is he a pilot? 
No, he's not. He awesome. is. He loves to build airplanes that fly. I love to fly airplanes he built. Mm -hmm. So it's a wonderful uh, uh, relationship in that sense. I, I fly with him. I take him flying as often as I can. He's actually taken lessons and, and can do everything. He just doesn't have the, the pilot certificate. Okay. Um, and I have something, I think I have something like 250 or 260 hours in our plane, in our family plane. Wow. So being up in the air in a plane, is it, is everything gauge related? Like, how do you, like that, that's what throws me off. Like here, I'm going to give you a, a, take you down a different road for a second. My kid was playing baseball at Princeton one day. He was, um, he was working out, trying to, trying to get a college to take him play baseball. And I'm off to the side and there's a guy there with a drone. So I'm using this example because I know you know the space. So we are standing at the football stadium at Princeton University, and he flew his drone out to the traffic circle on Route 1 and then brought it back, and I was flipped out by that. But that doesn't seem crazy to you, I imagine. No, I, I assume the airspace there is, is perfectly legal, and if it wasn't, he probably wouldn't have been able to fly the drone there. The drone right. probably wouldn't have even gotten off the ground or entered that airspace. He just he had on a pair of like virtual reality goggles and it just went up in the air and he was able to like see Orin, you're so like aware of this that you're not following my my incredulous uh, <laughs> discussion. Like how the hell did he find something and bring it back? Like I don't like none of that makes sense to me, but he had gauges in front of him and he was able to do that. And is that how you fly? Like, how would you describe being up in the air in a cloud, not being able to really see anything and still go where you mean to go. So I do have an instrument rating. I'm allowed to fly in the clouds. Mm -hmm. I don't generally, okay. I, I don't fly if it's not good weather. I like flying on beautiful, clear days. I like not having to look at my instruments at all. Uh, in an emergency, of course, if I fly into a cloud or suddenly the weather turns to crap, I can, I can instantly look down at my gauges and fly off of them. Um, but normally I fly in beautiful, clear days. And when I take you flying, we're going to do it on a beautiful, clear day. And you're going to see that, that this is how airplanes work. Um, I did get my instrument rating specifically so that if the weather turns bad, I can, I can still fly and I can make it safely back onto the ground. Okay. It's difficult because you need to trust the gauges, mm -hmm. ignore everything your body is telling you, but also know to look out for what happens if the gauges malfunction or stop working. When it stops feeling right. Like, so... So trust the gauges right up until it doesn't feel right. No, trust no. the gauges. It, it's not based on your feeling, but okay. there are checks for the instruments. So what happens if the instruments don't agree? It's not based on what you're feeling sort of in your body because that's completely unreliable in a cloud. Mm -hmm. It's based on the instruments versus themselves and checking that and, and double checking. Uh, it's difficult. Instrument flying is is a challenge. I, I haven't done much of it, but I got the instrument rating uh, for basically for safety. Okay. Yeah, no, I would imagine. So when you're in a cloud and you can't see, your brain is telling you, yo, man, we're in trouble. Like, like you, you get that. So you have to ignore that feeling of this isn't right and lean on the, on the gauges. And then the redundancy, I guess, about what some gauges tell other gauge, tell you about other gauges. Is that the, is the basic idea? Yeah. And when I, when I did my instrument rating before you would, you, before you would do a flight in a cloud, it shouldn't surprise you, right? You check the weather, you know, okay, this flight is going to be probably in the clouds because this is the weather forecast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, ignore what your body is telling you, focus on the gauges, um, and fly off of that. And obviously the more you do it, the better you get at it, the more comfortable it gets. Okay. I haven't done a lot of it. And frankly, I haven't done it in years. So I, I wait for my good, clear, beautiful days to fly, and those are the days I stick with uh, now. Gotcha. Now, larger airliners, do they 
from what you know, do they fly them? I mean, I don't want to use this term. It feels weird, but I, I had, uh, I knew someone once that flew like, you know, large people movers, you know, hundreds of people right. on a plane. <laughs> and he's like, look, man, you basically push a button. That thing takes off. You push another button. That thing lands. It's, you know, you're there in case something goes wrong. That's how he described flying an airliner. But is, I don't know if he was being flippant or uh, showing off. Like I can't tell because I've never spoken to another, you know, um, pilot since then, maybe one or two. Is that how, how do those planes work? And, and I know you don't fly them, but what is your knowledge of them? I mean, the level of automation on those on, on commercial airliners is incredible. The, the autopilots are fantastic. The what's called the FMS, the flight management system is incredible. And you get the airplane off the ground, you can hit a button and, and the plane will do almost the rest. Um, and some planes can even land themselves. So there, it is possible to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's how some pilots approach it. Some pilots take the approach that we're there to make sure nothing goes wrong. Let the plane fly itself. Um, others like to hand fly yeah. uh, and you can hand fly for, for portions of a flight. Um, so that, it, it depends on the pilot, but yes, mo- your modern commercial airliner is an incredible piece of technology okay. that can largely fly itself. Are, um, okay. So, all right. So now let's get to more of why I asked you to come on the podcast. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever heard, but 150 episodes ago, I had a man on named John. And he came on to tell his story of how his career was completely taken from him when he was diagnosed with type one diabetes. He was a a pilot and in like the blink of an eye, his, his entire, what he loved, what he did, what, you know, the way he made his money and supported himself was gone in an instant. Um, and so my question is, has, how long has it been a, is, has this standing rule been that people with type one diabetes can't fly? Is that, um, certain, certain larger airplanes, like how long has that been in effect? Is it, is it going to always thing or always? always. Yeah. So, since the dawn of aviation, okay. um, when commercial, as far as I know, and, and I'd, I'd have to check this to be a hundred percent sure, but I'm sure that, you know, once we created the commercial airliner system and once the, the authorities and the regulators, regulators created the, the, the pilot system to, to make sure somebody's fit for flight. If you had type one diabetes or insulin dependent diabetes, you were not going to be a commercial pilot. Okay. And I think that was, it was probably that way from the very beginning. And so you could fly your own private plane. Is that right? Even that I'd have to check on the history of that. Okay. That was allowed in the U S I believe in the nineties, you could fly your own private plane within certain parameters. Uh, but you couldn't fly commercially. You were never going to be a commercial pilot. You could just get your own license for yourself. And even that wasn't standard. So other countries simply said, no, not happening. You're not allowed. Okay. And obviously, I mean, obviously the idea is that if you have mismanaged your insulin too much, your blood sugar could plummet quickly. And, you know, we're, exactly. not, we're not looking for you to crash an airplane. And it's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there were people back then too, who, whose management was amazing. And, and they're like, look, that's not going to happen to me. But, you know, I mean, think about it from their perspective, from the people making the, the decisions perspective, you have a large plane up in the air, you have lives in your hands and you've got to whip out a meter and test your blood sugar. And, you know, what if you are getting low and how, how long it would take to come back? Like, it makes sense. Like, you know, basically from an outsider's point of view, it makes sense to like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like the most egregious thing in the world to say that somebody using man-made insulin 50 years ago wouldn't be um, able to fly a plane. Or do you? feel differently about that. No, I get it as a blanket rule. I agree with you as a blanket rule, especially 
um, you know, before we had the technologies that are so common to us these days, CGMs and insulin pumps and, and all sorts of other tools and devices to, to make our management better, I understand it as a blanket rule. Right. I think what frustrated a lot of pilots is when the technology got better and when, and when, when pilots with diabetes were able to show, look at how good my management is, I haven't had a dangerous low, that was when it became frustrating that the FAA wouldn't consider a case-by-case exemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were like, no, we have a rule, and that's that. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's what frustrated a lot of people, and that's what a lot of people were also advocating for, from the American Diabetes Association to, um, to the uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. They were all pushing for the FAA to take a second look at this. Yeah. Um, is it the advent of technology that moved this along, or is it just people pushing? What do you think got us to where we are now, which is you know, the rule being overturned? Both. I think there was a lot of banging on doors from a lot of people, but also in in writing his decision, the federal air surgeon wrote the technology has gotten to the point where this is manageable. You can manage and manage very well your your diabetes uh, with insulin in flight. Um, so what what the change now has done is it used to be that you that if you had insulin dependent diabetes, you couldn't apply for a first or second class medical. And that's the, the sort of level of medical required to fly commercially, mm-hmm. to fly commercial airliners. And now they'll say, we'll consider this on a case-by-case basis. And that's the big change, that they're even willing to consider the application. Um, so and that's not, an enormous change. It's not a, no, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge step forward, but it's not a blanket. It's not like, it's not like if you have diabetes right now, you just say, I have diabetes on my medical form and they go, that's fine. And you get, you get this distinction. It's still, it's case by case. They're going to, they're going to sit and review every person with type one diabetes who, who wants to have this, this license. Is that right? Exactly. And I haven't talked to anybody going through the process, although I know there are a few who have begun to go through the process, but I imagine it will not be pain-free, quite exhaustive, even especially as they start doing it, maybe even quite difficult. Um, they want to see, I'd imagine they want to see your records. They want to make sure you weren't hospitalized with a low blood sugar. Um, and uh, frankly, all of this paperwork just takes time to dig up. Um, we'll outlast them, (laughs) (laughs) but, 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 you know, but the process is there. Yeah. So what I was thinking is that, you know, the advent of the technology makes them think of it differently, but they're not saying you have to use the technology. So I could still roll in with my pens and my meter and be like, look, I hear my records. I've been fine. And they'd still have to consider me. It's not like they're saying, look, you have to wear a Dexcom if you want to do this. Is that right? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. They may require they may require a CGM okay. instead of simply, you know, an old school one touch where you're pricking your finger every hour. They may require you to be able to check instantly and know not only your current blood sugar, but the last X amount of hours. So you know what you're trending. Um, I don't know. I don't know specifically how they're going to do that, but something like that wouldn't surprise me. Um, because they want to be exact on this. There are other countries that allow insulin dependent diabetes to fly commercial aircraft that require two pilots. So one of them has insulin dependent diabetes. The other does not. So for example, Canada, I believe allows that. Um, they're so nice. And that's, I think the direction the U S is going And the U S won't allow you to fly a plane on yourself, but by yourself, but with somebody else, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, Blood sugars are, are carefully managed. They've decided it's it, it could be safe enough with another pilot in the cockpit. It does, again, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. It's you know you can't ignore the fact that I mean, listen, I, I, or you know, my daughter's fifteen. She's had diabetes since she was two. Um, I am you know, uh, it, 
I, I don't know. Jeez, I just tripped over my own words because I didn't want to sound like a like a <laughs> like a douchebag. But I'm incredibly good at managing her type one diabetes. Okay, um, and so my daughter's A one C has been between five two six two for over five years. Her variability wow. is terrific. Her stability. You and I have been talking right now. Her blood sugar has been eighty five the entire time we're talking. She's at school, and and um, I know how to do this pretty well. There are still right. times. When out of nowhere, I'm like, why is her blood sugar falling like that? Like I, you know, in a million years could not have predicted, you know, today's going to be the day that this is going to happen out of nowhere. And I have a fairly uh, good handle on it. Um, But, you know, it it also comes down to, um, in my mind, also like, like civil liberties, you know, there's, you know, I think it's a, you know, we say, you know, there are a lot of jokes about different people's professions, but you know, drinking amongst pilots is, is something that I think is, a uh, is not unheard of. And yet, you know, that happens and there's no like hard and fast rule that you have to, you know, blow into a breathalyzer before you go into a plane. Um, so, I mean, where do you draw the line for people who, you know, not, not to, again, I'm not, it's not apples to apples, uh, alcoholism and, and type one diabetes. But I'm saying, like, thank you. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I was saying, Orin, is you're pretty much yeah, just yeah, like cool. an alcoholic here with your with your insulin. No, but, <laughs> but you know, I'm just saying, like, you know, this is something that's known, and it's not like everyone's being cut away. And so you get, you know, you get a chance to prove yourself. That's 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 America, right? Uh, at the same time. I don't want you proving yourself while me and my family are trying to get to Disney World and maybe you're not having a great day. But but it's a really interesting conversation and I think it's moving in the right direction. I'm incredibly um, uh, excited about where it's going because after listening to John talk about this thing that he loved so much and hearing you talk about how much you not only love flying, but you've wanted to do it your entire life, it seems incredibly arbitrary to just take it from somebody like that. I agree. And and look, certainly I'm frustrated that the process has taken this long, but the FAA is now on board. Uh, like I said, the first few through the system, I'm sure is going to be a pain in the neck. And it might be a pain in the neck for everybody, but at least it can be a pain in the neck. At least the option is there yeah. and you can pursue this. Yeah, get into the fight, try to make it work. I, I, I do find myself wondering while we're talking if there isn't going to be just sort of an institutional bias because this has always been this way and okay, we've given you guys your attempt to, you know, you're allowed to get into this now and try to get through the system, but we don't really want, I wonder if there is that we don't really want you here and we're going to make this really difficult feeling, or if it is an open feeling and they are looking for people who are, are great candidates for this. I I hope it's the latter. Um, but you know, sometimes there's boys clubs that, you know, I mean, sometimes people, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it, 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 it could be that situation where they're like, all right, we let you apply, but no, and that's it. I'm dying to find out. Like, I can't wait for people's applications to get through and, and to see how it goes. Cause I'm hoping for, I'm hoping that it's just case by case and you get your license back. It, that'd be amazing. Yeah, that would be incredible. And the one thing from that perspective we have going for us is there's a massive pilot shortage in the U S. So at really? some point, massive pilot shortage over the, over the course of the next decade or two decades, um, at some point it might be, it might, you know, the, the, the airliners might not think this is the greatest idea right now. Look, if the FAA has signed off on you and given you the, the permission to fly with insulin-dependent diabetes, mm-hmm. the need is there, you're signed off, they gave you your medical, get in the cockpit and start flying. I got in a plane the other day, and the pilot didn't, he was so old that I thought someone must have carried him into the cockpit, right? And there was like a part <laughs> of me that was like, I'm just going to hope that means 
you know that he's got a lot of experience and that's good. <laughs> but I'm expecting like at that age to need nappy. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's, oh Scott, that's a bit harsh. That's a bit harsh. Come on. Come on. I don't know. I don't know. I get sleepy now. I'm not even 50. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, again, it, the, there's a shortage. What popped into my brain was what we have now is a glut of common sense because, <laughs> but do you know why there's a shortage? Is there something that they can point to? There are a lot of reasons. Um, it's not the glamour job it once was, you know, sort of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very difficult industry. Um, you know, you start, you're hauling middle-of-the-night flights and small airplanes just to try to build up your hours. Yeah. It also takes a lot of time to build up the hours necessary to be a commercial airliner. All of that just makes it more difficult to be a pilot and fewer fewer, fewer, fewer people are, are interested in going that direction. Mm-hmm. That, plus so many other reasons, has led to just a massive shortage of, of pilots over the course of the next uh, you know, decade, as, especially as air travel itself is growing and growing continuously. Yeah, It's funny, you made me think, if I'm remembering correctly, when John was on, he talked about he is, was still able to uh, like fly cargo, I guess. Um, or in smaller, I guess in smaller planes, if I'm remembering right, that's, but you know, but he would describe it as like these long overnight flights, like over mountain ranges and just, you know, um, not, not what he was doing prior. Um, I do think too, his airline allowed him to do training for people, which I think he still found, um, like satisfying, but obviously not the same as flying. Right. What is it? Could be, could very well be. Yeah. What is it about? Can you put it into words? Like what's amazing about flying? If I said to you, if I took this from you, you would miss like, what is that thing for you? It's magic. It's the closest thing to real magic. You will get on God's green earth. The ability to hop into an airplane, flip a switch, you know, crank the engine over and and take off. That's it. I don't, I don't have to worry about gravity anymore. Um, until I run out of fuel. Um, there's nothing like it in the world. Um, just being able to take off and, and do what you want, fly up and down the East coast. Uh, I've taken our family's home built airplane up to Lake Placid down to Jacksonville, uh, as far West as Nashville. Um, and it's incredible. Everything about it is incredible. So, and I grew up fairly broke, so we didn't go on vacations or, you know, smile. I'm just kidding, but we didn't go on vacations <laughs> and, uh, it, and I didn't fly as, you know, a child. So I'm going to tell you this brief story. I I don't think I've ever told this story, um, but it belongs here. So um, it's late at night. We're in outside of Northeast Philly, all hanging out at a movie theater where friends of ours work. And it's got to be like one o'clock in the morning. And this one of our friends comes pulling up super like fast, like comes to a screeching halt. We're all outside. It's a summer night. And he's like, yo, you guys got to come down to the Northeast airport stuttering john from the howard stern show is going to be there in an hour and he's flying out and we can meet him and you know we're like 19 so that seemed right. like a thing to do and you know and so we get in the car we drive down to this little airport and we're all hanging out you know in the office waiting and sure enough here comes you know this guy who works on the howard stern show and later i guess was on uh the tonight show with jay leno and, and um he's with a friend and it turns out they had a band and they were playing locally in the city and he had to go to albany because howard stern was running for governor or something like that. And they were doing this thing and he had to fly away. So we're all just standing there like talking a little bit. And we kind of just walked with him out on the tarmac to this, you know, small plane. And he climbs up the stairs to get on the plane. And he turns around to realize that his buddy was not with him. 
And he looks at his friend and he says, yo, man, come on. And the guy goes, I can't go with you. I have to go back to the gig and clean up our stuff. And John says, I'm not getting on this plane by myself. And he makes eye contact with me. He goes, you want to go to Albany? And I went, yes, I do. And I walked (laughs) forward, right? I walked forward and I, and I, I start going up on the plane and I realize I'm there with five or six friends who I'm just abandoning, like with no thought whatsoever. Right. (laughs) And I said, I said to him, I said, can I bring somebody with me? He goes, ask the pilot. I was like, can we bring more people? And the guy goes, you can bring one more. So I turned around, made the hardest decision of my life, picked my friend Mike over other people who I really loved. We get on the plane. We're, you know, he said, thank you. I didn't want to fly by myself. I would have been nervous and we're taxiing down the runway and this plane is picking up speed and it gets ready to look off the ground, lift off the ground. And my buddy looks me right in the eye and he goes, you've never been in a plane before. And I didn't realize it until he told me because of the moment I had never flown. I had never been off the ground and I di- and had my friend not told me, I would not have realized that as the plane got up off the ground <laughs> because it was just such a bizarre set of circumstances, you know? Um, anyway, we get to Albany and, um, and it was a really cool flight and asked him all kinds of questions about his life and stuff like that. And, but it was before cell phones and, you know, anything. So my friend and I are in Albany, New York with no wallet, no phone, no anything. And he, and he's like, so what we'll do now? And I'm like, no, man, we got to go back. You know, like I can't stay, I mean, unless you can get me back to like into the city at least tomorrow, you know? And he couldn't promise that. So he looks at the pilots because we take these guys back and the pilots are all like trying to, you know, be nice to John. Like, of course, of course. We get on the plane and or and they shut the heat off. They didn't care about it. Like we were not important. We were we turned into cargo on the way back. But my buddy and I got the, <laughs> we, we landed at like sun sunrise and then uh walked three and a half miles home because we were abandoned at the airport by our uh, by our friends. But it was a really incredible night and the first time I had ever been on a plane. Now I fly a lot to go to speaking stuff, but and you know, vacationing and things like that once in a while. But yeah, I I, uh, I had I had never thought about being in a plane until I was in one. Um, but, so how do we get from there to you not liking flying all that much? It's not because that I, seems like it, a pretty pretty good good start. I don't mind flying. I don't mind being in a plane actually at all. I just can't imagine the idea that I would want to be in charge of the plane. Like that's the thing that I can't wrap my head around. Like I was in Costco yesterday looking for something. And I realized that I'd walked down the same aisle three times. And that doesn't, to me, seem like the kind of person who should be in charge of flying something through the, through the air. I just don't think I have the focus it would take to do that. It just seems like, it, like you said, it's, it seems magical. I don't think I'm magical. I, I think I'm a good driver. Um, I just, I don't, I don't think I could be in charge of a plane. Look, there's much less to hit up there. You don't have to worry about driving versus flying. <laughs> um, so you've never had the controls in your hands of an airplane? Never. No. No, that that seems that seems otherworldly to me. It really does. Like, All right, I'm going to take you flying. Oh, jeez, Lord. You're going to kill me just for this podcast? That's fine. Um, and it, there is Well, a- no, it'll be, a, it'll be a later podcast. But uh, <laughs> I, I realize I live in Jerusalem and I'm not home that often. <laughs> but hopefully over summer, we'll put the controls in your hands. I'll okay. do takeoff and landing. I'll take care of that. Mm. You do everything else. Uh, I, I'll tell you, when you were emailing, you said, ask Arden if she'd like to go. And I told Arden, she's like, yo, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Arden. That's not fair. Whatever's, I guess it's fair. But. Whatever's in me is in her because she was like, who? I don't know him. No, thank you. And I was like, it's, it is really, well, you know, it's sort of the, it's sort of society too. Like, you know, if I go to an airport and a company owns the plane, all of a sudden that seems more, I don't know what legitimate, 
you, you know, but it's not like a like what's the difference between I also lived through John Denver crashing, so I've been I was alive for that. <laughs> <laughs> so see, Scott, you're easy to convince because all I need to do is tell you the best sandwich shop I've ever been to. Is it an airport in Virginia? And I'll fly you there. I, I I'm not gonna lie; it would probably be pretty cool. I I, I have a. <laughs> it's funny you said that because I have a speaking thing in Virginia in August, and I said to them like, "You're not gonna expect me to drive to that, right? Like, I have to fly." And and they're like, "No, no, we'll fly you." And I was like, "Okay." I was like, "Because I'm not driving that far, and and it's only a few hours." Um, you know, I I have no problem. I'm gonna be in a plane five six times in the next six months. I have no thought. I don't. I'm not a nervous flyer. Like nothing about flying bothers me whatsoever. I have a real Zen feeling about life and death. Like I'm up there now. It's either going to get on the ground or it's not. Like I'm not going to spend time worrying about it. Um, that I'm okay with. I have no trouble with that. All right, so we'll see what happens. How and you do? How often do you get home? Is it just to visit family usually? Uh, three or four times a year. Yeah. And my number one priority, uh, I I tell people it's seeing my family. My number one priority is seeing my airplane. Is is scheduling a day to go to the airport and get in get in some flying. Can you fly in Jerusalem at all? Theoretically, I could try to transfer my license, but everything is here. Everything everything here is military airspace, which means. There's no like freedom of flying like there is in the U.S. In the U.S., I can take off from Old Bridge, New Jersey, and go just about wherever I want. Mm -hmm. Here, it's there's none of that. Here, it's you're doing this, you're doing it at this altitude. Go here, do this. I'll 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 save my flying for the U.S. Well, okay. So I have a couple other questions before I let you go. Um, of course, you, you wrote a book called The Insulin Express. What 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 got you to do that? So when we started traveling. I decided I wanted to write a book. The problem is everyone who decides to travel decides they want to write a book. So I didn't actually know what made my story a good story. Mm -hmm. And then I was diagnosed with diabetes while traveling. And I decided, okay, now I have a story. Um, and this, it ended up being, it was supposed to be a book about travel. Um, and now I think in the end, it's more a book about travel with diabetes. Uh, the diagnosis, the symptoms that I ignored until, until it was almost too late. And then getting back on the road. And it's intended to be funny, uh, hopefully a little inspirational for those who read it and just sort of have a good time. And, and hopefully it inspired a few people to, to get out there and travel. That's excellent. Well, I, I'm a big proponent, actually, some joking aside, of, of people not being um, afraid with their diabetes. So I'm gonna, I'll put a link with the podcast episode to your book. Is Amazon the place you'd want them to go get it? Yeah, yeah. thank you. Oh, of course. Now, um, that's, isn't it funny you, you think – because of your job, right? I guess who you are. It's like you're a story. You consider yourself a storyteller, like like how yes. to take the yeah. new, right the news and turn it into something that people would be interested in listening to. Is yeah, I've always viewed our job as part of my job is to gather information, and the other part of that is to make make that information presentable and interesting. That whole part is the storytelling part, and 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 that's the part I enjoy is making something you know, making something compelling and interesting. And I hope I did that with the insulin express. Yeah. And I have to say like, I'm, I'm proud of the podcast for that because, you know, when I, when I first started doing this, like five years ago, somebody told me you're going to run out of things to talk about, about diabetes. And I was like, no, you're thinking about it wrong. You know, like, it's not just a, it's not just a, a way to say things to people that is, you know, medicine, things that they should hear, but they don't want to hear. Like, this is a way to have conversations about things. Um, and, and open it exactly. up, right. You know, and, um, I think that I think of myself that way a little bit too. Like there's a way to take diabetes and turn it into something you want to hear about. And, and I think that's a, 
I think that's something that everyone should be doing just instead of just delivering dry information. Like, I don't know. I couldn't listen to, like, I always say if it, you know, you could put the secret to life at the end of a one hour podcast, but if it was boring, I probably wouldn't. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know if I need to know that badly, you you, you know, to listen straight through. Um, But I, I just, I think that's a really incredible thing. So I don't know how comfortable you are with this, but I am incredibly interested about this. And like, I know somebody who's a, um, um, a professor at Princeton who does a lot of travel to um, Israel. And I, every time I'm with her, I ask her like, explain the conflict in Israel to me in like layman's terms. And would you, mind, oh God. would you, can you do it? Can you turn it into a, like a five minute after school special version of what it is that's happening in Israel? Like, and why it's important. Or is, it oh, too, is it too big of an, wow. Ask? Is it too big of an ask? I may, I, ooh, let me think of, uh, is it too big of an ask? This is basically, describe everything I talk about. Uh, um, like, why should I, why should someone who doesn't normally care, care about what's happening there? Maybe that's a more fair question. Well, that, that's an easier question, because what happens here very much ties now into the U.S., into U.S. foreign policy, uh, to some extent into U.S. domestic policy. Um and that's because of the relationship between not only President Donald Trump and, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but also between Trump and Israel. Um, his relationship with Israel is very important to his voters, uh, to evangelicals, and um, and and so and you know many religious Christian voters. So in that sense, the two are very much linked. I may live in a you know in a, in a different country, but they are very closely linked from the perspective of modern U.S. policy and modern U.S. politics. Mm-hmm. Um, the history of the conflict question and sort of what it's all about, that one, uh, that one I'll push off. That's a, that's a long, long discussion. I can send you guys a whole bunch of links of, of stories I've written, and that would only be a fraction of, of catching you up to speed on what it is we follow here. It's too big because of just time and how long it's been going on and that there are two distinct, am I right that there are two distinct points of views? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and beyond that, two distinct narratives. Events viewed different ways, uh, decisions viewed as taken for different reasons, uh, claims of connection to the land, um, almost kind of a, a who was here first and and why I have a right to be here and you don't have as much of a right to be here. It all goes into that. And and then the context of of what's what's important and what's not. All of that comes from two entirely different perspectives. And it's it's my job or part of my job to consider all of that when we decide what it is we're going to say and, and how to say it. So when people are delivering the news or there's in my mind, there's two ways to deliver it, right? Like you deliver the facts or some people deliver the facts with their personal feelings involved, right? Like, and you are, you, would you consider yourself the former? You you're just delivering the facts. That's my job. And that's what I try to do. Yeah. Uh, I try not to let my personal feelings get involved in any way. I do try to add analysis and that goes beyond just the facts. That's, that's kind of the facts. Plus how does this figure into the current situation or, mm-hmm. or sort of how did we get here or where is this going? That's beyond the facts, but that's, you know, I try to be as, as sort of cold and unemotional in my analysis, uh, as I can be. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, in a sense, that's just part of the story. Mm-hmm. The facts are one part and the analysis around it tries to make it more interesting and, and put it in some sort of context. Yeah. So for me, I think that if everyone has whatever the facts are, then it'll shake out over time. And and I think the problem is, is that we all want things to be fixed so quickly. Like we, you know, it, we don't want to wait 
a week. We want to wait an hour. We don't want to wait a year. We want to wait a week. Like everybody wants it to be quick. And I'm sort of of the opinion that if everyone just understood what was happening, that slowly over time, things would work out the way they're going to work out. When you start trying to manipulate what's happening to, to get to an end, then you get to that end artificially and you're never going to be there comfortably, even if you get them there. I don't know if that's convoluted or not, but, but you can't get to something in a false manner because it it won't be true. And then it'll just, it, it'll, it's never going to be, um, something we can move on from, I guess, or to build on top of, like, I just feel like you have to let the chips fall where they may. Um, and, and I, I'm very happy for people like you who are able to deliver that information and let people make their own decisions or let it impact the world the way it's going to. Um, I, think I that, try, yeah. I, you know, I hope, I hope my viewers think I'm doing a good job. I hope our viewers think I'm doing a good job. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just, but at the end of the day, that's certainly my goal. That it, yeah. And, and do you, do you find, and if this is difficult for you, I'm not sure. And I know I didn't say I was going to talk, but is it, is it difficult to be doing this job right now? Is it more difficult to be doing it now than it has been in the past? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, and, and part of that is, you know, we want to build on the facts, but when we can't agree upon the facts, it's a, you know, that's a whole different world of problems. Right. No, no, I, I, it's difficult to talk about because you feel like it, it's interesting. In the past, you feel like you could have a conversation and now it feels like if I say something, I'm going to alienate half of the people listening. And, and um, it's hard because then I think we stop having honest conversations and then it's tough to to know what happens next. Like, right. If, if, if you're in a, if you're on one side of a paywall and I'm on the other side of a paywall and I'm just seeing what I want to see and you're seeing what you want to see. And then how do we, how do either of us understand what's happening anymore? It's uh, I don't know. It's interesting. It, it's a, it's a very interesting problem. Yeah. I, I agree with you from my perspective, you know, and, and I think this gets it at what you're pointing at. The middle ground is missing, you know, let's meet and discuss in the middle ground, except when the, when the middle ground is missing, it's tough to even begin that conversation. And, and, you know, it turns toxic when it shouldn't. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it, that's well put. It really is. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I'm just, it's fascinating. Like I could have talked to you about a completely different thing today. Um, I'm just, I, you know what I think it happened to me is that the, um, the IG report came out this morning and, uh, it got me thinking about all that, right. As you, as I was jumping on with you and I was like, Oh, see, look, here's the report of what happened. And, and immediately <laughs> someone's like, that's not what happened. I'm like, well, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I feel like it's snowing and someone's telling me I'm on the beach and I'm just like, all right, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> anyway, um, did I, uh, did I leave anything out of this that I should have brought up that I, that I'm a miss for not? Uh, I don't think so. Other than the ironclad commitment that you're going to come flying with me. All right. Arn. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, uh, when we, but when we land, can we go to Chickies and Pete's afterwards or we're going to be close to Oh my God, I miss chickies and peats. There's so many things that I miss. And, and they're the stupid things, right? Yeah. I miss Chinese food. There's an Asian restaurant here, a new one, mm-hmm. that's fancy. And it's like General Cho's chicken is 20 bucks. And it's like, no, I want to pay $6 for this. And I want to feel horrible after I eat it. That's what I, I miss. Thing. I miss Dunkin' Donuts. I want a large, watered down American coffee. That's the thing that. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I, uh, you know, all right. So there is an airport in my town. So I guess I'm going to have a hard time making up an excuse for this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but okay let's stay in touch and you can you can you 
and drop me out of the sky in a rock if you want to. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't have that kind of range, so you're safe. <laughs> it's amazing. So, do you like? Do you plan ideas around the idea that you can fly? Like, we'll fly here and then do this, or yeah, yeah. Look, if the weather in a perfect world, um, you know, we'd fly to Delaware, about a forty-five minute flight. We'd have lunch and fly back. No kidding. All right, all right, I'm in. If you're having a good time, we can fly to Virginia and fly to my sandwich shop. But that's about two hours in the air. That's a that's a bit much for sort of a first flight when I'm giving you the controls. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm not looking to. Uh... Plus, you you heard me earlier. I could get sleepy at any point. And <laughs> <laughs> we have an autopilot. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I'm in. All right. You, you tell me when you're back, and then that'll be it. I really appreciate you doing this so much. Give me one second to say goodbye to you without the recording on. Of course. Oren Lieberman's book, The Insulin Express, One Backpack, Five Continents, and The Diabetes Diagnosis That Changed Everything is available at Amazon.com. Except they say it, Amazon.com, and I don't feel like re-recording that. So there's a link in the show notes to get the book or to check it out. And uh, just kind of got to live with my terrible pronunciation there for a second. I want to thank Dancing for Diabetes. You can find them at touchedbytype1.org. I want to thank Dexcom for their sponsorship and support of the Juicebox podcast. And of course, Omnipod, the world's only tubeless insulin pump. The combination of Dexcom and Omnipod in our lives has been astounding, impactful, lovely, comforting, and much more. But that was very feeling. Did you feel that? I really meant that. Anyway, I hope you check them out. Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Links in the show notes for your podcast player. The links that are available at juiceboxpodcast.com. Or of course, you can just type these things in your browser. I appreciate you supporting the podcast by supporting the advertisers. Here's a little bonus for listening through to the end. Uh, this is from the FAA. FAA.gov, the Federal Aviation Administration. Guide for Aviation Medical Examiners. Decisions considerations. Decision considerations. Who writes this stuff? Decision considerations, disease protocols, diabetes mellitus type 1 and type 2, insulin-treated, non-CGM, third-class option. Consideration will be given only to those individuals who have been clinically stable on their current treatment regimen for a period of six months or more. The FAA has an established policy that permits the special issuance medical certificate. Wait, what in God's name? Why don't they just say this in English? The special issuance medical certification to some insulin-treated applicants. Individuals certified under this policy will be required to provide medical documentation regarding their history or treatment accidents, and current medical status. If certified, they will be required to adhere to monitoring requirements. There are no restrictions regarding flight outside of the United States airspace. Airmen with a current third-class certification will have the limitation removed with their next certification, with their next certificate. I guess that could have said either. Not not with their next either, but their next certificate or certification just happens to say certificate. I bet you're glad you hung out for this. If they need the limitation removed sooner, they should contact AMCD for an updated certificate without the limitation. The following is a summary 
of the evaluation protocol and an outline of the condition that the FAA will apply for third-class applications. First and second-class applications will be evaluated on a case-by-case basis by the Federal Air Surgeon's Office. That was right there on FAA.gov. At the bottom in parentheses, it says, Note, insulin pumps are acceptable. This page was last modified. November 7th, 2019, 4.06 p.m. in the afternoon, Eastern Time. Well, that was something. I think we've learned that I can't read. All right, I'll see you guys soon.